Good morning. Welcome here this morning. I'd like you to turn to Matthew 20. Um, there's been a few interesting coincidences. I think God probably God coincidences this morning. I'm never sure how much stock to put in the things that I noticed as coincidences, but um, no, this, this after you read this morning, for some reason the marker in my Bible has been sitting there all week. I've been studying and keep flipping back and forth between that chapter and the fact. I don't know why. There wasn't a direct correlation between the two, but um, I was blessed to have you read that this morning. The other thing that's, that's coincidental um, is that I'm going to be talking about spiritual vision today, and also this had nothing to do with this had nothing to do with you. Um, I don't know what the reason was that this is what I shared, but. I didn't know about your situation until I got here this morning. Um, so another interesting coincidence. I think God works these things um, for according to His plan. I want to look at this. This is a story, and I don't know. I'm trying to remember. Freeman Miller or Melvin Layman talked about the power of stories, and I didn't see this just because it was a story. But there is a power in in stories, and this is a story about Jesus. And I think it's something that can, can bless us and challenge us today. And hopefully it can, since it is a story, hopefully it's something that can capture our attention and our, our thoughts this morning. Um, maybe let's pray before we get into it and then we can, then we can start looking at this story. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day and we just pray that you would bless us as we look at this incident in the life of Christ. And our life of people here on the earth. And I just pray that you would teach us about our need for you and our need for um, your touch on our spiritual vision. I just pray that we can learn from you today. Thank you, Lord, for the present. We pray for your spirit with us today. We pray this in your name. Let's read this, and then I want to talk about some of the background behind this, this story. In Matthew 20, verses 29 through 34. And as they departed from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the wayside, when they heard that Jesus passed by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. And the multitude rebuked them, because they could hold their peace. But they cried the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. And Jesus stood still and called them and said, What will you that I shall do unto you? They say unto him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Now, some background on this, this story. Uh, first of all, who is they? Um, they, in, the, in verse 29, is Jesus and his 12 disciples. Um, you look back at verse 17 of this chapter. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem and he took the 12 disciples with him. Um, verse 17, he went to the side for a discussion. But that's who's traveling here. And of course, along with them is this multitude following Jesus and um, being interested in what he's doing. They're coming from, if you, if you look back in Matthew 19, to the, um, 
Matthew 19.1, they had just gone into Judea beyond Jordan, over on the other side of the Jordan, and now they're traveling back towards Jerusalem. And I remember this story from when I was a child, but I, I hadn't put it together until I was studying this time, but this is right before um, the triumphal entry, and right at the end of Jesus' ministry, I was in the last week or two of his life. As far as Zacchaeus is right after this, <clears throat> and um, this is right near Jericho. And there's a little, it's interesting, three parallel passages here of the same story. Um, two of them, Matthew and Mark, said he was leaving Jericho. Luke says he was getting to Jericho. Some people think that maybe there was, he was in between old Jericho and new Jericho. There was another two different um, city stores right there. The characters in the story are these two blind men. One of them was Bartimaeus. He's not mentioned here, but in the other accounts, he is the primary figure. He is probably a well-known blind beggar, since he's the one that's mentioned in the other accounts. Um, and then there was another blind man with him who must not have been as well-known, or at least wasn't mentioned by name. In Luke 4.18, Jesus read a passage from Isaiah. This is very well known, very familiar. Um, but he specifically mentions in that passage, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. And the preacher acceptable year of the Lord, verse 19. Um, Jesus mentioned there that he was sent to heal the blind. And there's a little significance there. His blindness was sort of understood, at least some of the time, as punishment for sin. Um, in Acts 13, Paul basically curses Elamus with blindness because of his rejection of God. And the, when there was a man who was born blind that he was going to heal, they, they came and asked the question, who was the one that sinned? Did this man sin or did his parents sin? Why was he born blind? And so there's probably a bit of stigma attached to these men, or at least some feeling that maybe something had been, maybe there was some sin in their lives, maybe their parents had sinned, there was something surrounding them being blind. Now, I don't know that the Old Testament ever specifically says that blindness is a curse because of sin. There seems to be the opinion that people had then. So those are two of the main characters, these two blind men. Then there's the multitude, um, a group of people following Jesus. Probably a bunch of them were thinking, we're getting close to Jesus establishing an earthly kingdom because just a few days later, there's a triumphal entry. Some of, the, some of them were looking for spiritual food. Some were seeking healing. Uh, some were just curious. Uh, some were hoping for power, probably, thinking there is going to be a kingdom set up. Now is my chance to get in on something. Um, just a very mixed group of people. And then, of course, Jesus was one of the main characters. Um, really, the central character of the story. He was. He was the healer, and as the blind men recognized, he was the Messiah. They called him the Son of David. 
and giving him giving him that title meant that they recognized him as the Messiah. <clears throat> they called him Lord, um, which we would like to think they understood what that meant. But probably what they were saying was something like Master, um, recognizing him with a title of respect. Um, I did a little saying about the meaning of Lord. It sounded like that up until Christ's death and resurrection, was primarily used fairly commonly as a title of respect. But then the Christians, after his death and resurrection, pretty quickly started using it to refer only to Jesus, um, more, of a, more of a title of deity. Um, but at this point, it was probably just a common way of respecting somebody and saying he was somebody important. Um, Maybe even just a stranger to them. It's a way of addressing it. So Jesus was here as a healer, the Messiah, um, a master, and then a, a personal God, a God that reached out and called to them and, and touched them, had compassion on them. Looking at this story, just the, the face value of the story, the, the physical things that happened, uh, I'm impressed with different things about it. Um, one thing is the contrast in verse 29, there's a multitude, and verse 30, the blind man. The contrast between these two groups of people. Uh, we would assume that most of the people in the multitude are probably healthy individuals. Um, when people came to Jesus for healing, they tried to get to him as quickly as they could and be healed. Probably most of the people that were trailing along behind Jesus weren't just people who were hoping to get a chance to be healed. They probably were the majority of them healthy people. Um, now, maybe there were some in that group that just hadn't had the bravery to holler like the blind man yet. I don't know. Um, the, the multitude was following Jesus for mixed reasons, well, like we mentioned earlier. The blind men, on the other hand, they were very purposeful in what they wanted. They had one thing they were thinking about, and they made sure that, that Jesus knew about it. The people who are in the multitude may not even recognize who Jesus really was. These blind men, they knew that, that Jesus was the Messiah. And so while, while they weren't seeing physically, uh, they spiritually under, understood who, who Jesus was. I don't know how they understood that. I don't know how much they had heard about Jesus. I don't know if they had heard of Jesus before or actually heard from him before. Um, but they somehow recognized who Jesus really was. The multitude tried to keep these men from getting to Jesus. It's kind of an unusual twist on the story. That rather than helping them to get to Jesus, like some stories and hear friends carrying people who couldn't get there to Jesus. They actually tried to, to touch them and, and keep them away, it seems like. But these men persisted. And then Jesus stopped and listened and takes time to them. And he called to them and asked them what they wanted. He wanted to hear from them what was their actual request. What was the, what was the thing that they wanted? Um, and then he, it doesn't say it here, but in the other account, it says he actually called them to come to him, which was a pretty large request for blind men. They had to somehow get from wherever they were to wherever Jesus was through this crowd 
And it seems like he was checking to see how persistent are you? What level of faith do you have? Now, remember I said this was the last, this was the right before Jesus' triumphal entry. This was probably the last time that Jesus was in Jericho at all. Um, it's very unlikely that Jesus went back to Jericho. It's a that he went to Bethany, to Jerusalem, and back and forth between Bethany and Jerusalem. That was some distance from Jericho. If these men had not persisted, they would not have received their, their vision of their last cancer. They didn't know that. I'm sure they wouldn't have realized what was going on. And they were very specific in the request. They wanted their eyes to be open. And Jesus then had compassion on them and touched their eyes and, and healed them. And then they responded the way that you would have thought all people that were healed should have. They followed Jesus. Um, they, they could now see what Jesus did and where he went, and they could follow until they did. <clears throat> and we, we don't know how long they followed or how far they followed Jesus, but that was at least their first response was, was to follow. Now, I want to think about our, us spiritually, about our spiritual handicaps, our spiritual vision. I think we're we're all blind to a certain extent. Um, and I don't want to I don't want to paint too dim a picture of our spiritual vision, but we all are handicapped by humanity. Um, we're finite. We can only see so well spiritually. We're we're just physically and spiritually limited, and we all have our eyes open at conversion. There's a tremendous. Um, realization of our need that we didn't have before. And so that's a, an eye-opener. But I think spiritual vision is something that is ongoing. It doesn't just get you have your eyes open one time, and then from there on you can see everything clearly. Um, back in Psalms 119.18, David says, Open thou mine eyes, and I may behold wonders things out of that law. He was already serving God. He was filled with God's spirit at that point, and yet he was praying, God, continue to open my eyes. Or Paul on the Damascus Road, um, he was actually physically blinded, but his spiritual eyes were open. But he continued for years afterwards, then, um, with God. From what we understand, he went out in the desert of Arabia, and God continued to speak to him, and continued to reveal things for him, to him, rather. And his spiritual vision continued to grow. So, while our eyes are open to a certain extent, we have a continued need for, for growing vision, um, clearer vision, clearer spiritual vision. I think there's three things that we need to see clearly, and there's probably many more than that, but three that I'd like to think of briefly. We struggle to see Jesus correctly. Um, our view of God is shaped by so many things, and we struggle to have a really clear perspective of who He is. I mean, in reality, probably none of us has a completely accurate picture of God. We're finite beings that can't, that cannot understand the immensity or comprehend the immensity of who God is. And our views of God are, are shaped by many things that have happened in our lives. Um, 
So we struggle to see God in, in Jesus correctly. We need, we need God to continue to clarify our vision of who He is. Then we struggle to see ourselves correctly. Um, so I think that was what I appreciated about the, the chapter that Naaman read this morning is the call to God to search us because we can't, we, we don't see ourselves accurately. Um, sometimes we're too easy on ourselves. Sometimes we're too hard on ourselves. Sometimes we totally ignore parts of us that we should be paying attention to. And, and we need God to show us His perspective on us, His love for us, and um, His desire for us, His goals for us. Then the third thing is we, we often are blind to others. Uh, people around us, we don't see their needs, we don't see the things that they're struggling with, um, we don't recognize the ways that we could be helping them. We, we tend to be heavily blind to the needs of others. And God's desire is that our spiritual eyesight would always be improving. He, he, would, he wants us to grow in, in having clear spiritual vision. Now, God's work is to open our eyes spiritually. Um, it's not our job to come up with better spiritual vision. We can't do that. And so I'd like to think about some things that we can do, but I, I recognize that it's not about us to create perfect spiritual vision. Uh, it is God that does it. These blind men, they had a part to play. Um, they, they hollered. They made a bit of a, of a trip to Jesus, however many hundred yards that was, and then Jesus did all the work. So I don't want you to think that um, as we think about things that we can do to improve our vision, that we're talking just about us doing it all. It is God's work and not ours. Some of the things I'd like to call us to looking at this story. Um, the first one is to have humility in our spiritual perspective. Um, we, can, we can be pretty convinced that we really understand life and that we really understand the way things are. <clears throat> and we're unlike these blind men. These blind men knew they had a problem. They, they knew they needed help. And we can, unfortunately, begin to think that we just have things figured out. And only God has perfect spiritual vision. Um, I think of 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, the love chapter. And at the end of this chapter, it says, Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I know. Spanish says that we see. I was looking in a mirror, and it's blurry or shadowy. Um, that's the way we see things spiritually. We can't see things clearly. Uh, we see things a bit blurry or a bit shadowy. And we have examples of this in, in Scripture. Peter um, preached the first revival message at Pentecost, or first Christian revival message after, after the resurrection. Um, he took the gospel to the Gentiles, and then later on, Paul rebuked him because he is getting influenced by peer pressure. He was getting a little blurry. He wasn't keeping things, he, wasn't, he didn't have clear spiritual vision. Or Paul, 
who planted churches and was taught by God through dreams, and then divided with Barnabas over John Mark, and then later on says, John Mark is really useful to me. Um, now, that doesn't mean that Paul didn't have correct spiritual vision for, for planting churches or whatever it was that God was calling him to, but somehow his vision of what John Mark could be wasn't entirely, wasn't entirely clear. I think we can all identify with Barnabas and his friend at some point, crying out to God, Lord, help me to see um, spiritually. I think that often spiritual vision, this my experience has been, maybe all have had uh, a different experience, but I think my experience with spiritual vision often is that it is very incremental. Um, that God gives a little bit of direction and insight for today, and tomorrow he gives a little bit more, and day after day he gives a little bit more. Now, there have been a few times in my life where I felt like God gave me a long range, this is what I want you to do, or this is where I want you to go. I think many more times it is much more incremental. The children of Israel, when they, when they traveled through the desert, um, they did not know where they were going or what they were doing. They knew that the end goal was to get to Canaan, but they did not have any idea about the interim because they would stay in camp until the cloud or fire lifted, and when it lifted, they would pack up and start moving, and they would travel until the cloud or fire set down, and then they would stop and start camp. And so they, they didn't have any idea how long they'd be camped or how long they would travel. They just they followed whatever God said they'd done. So I guess my, my challenge to us is that let's be humble in our spiritual perspective humble enough to recognize that God may show me something else. God has more that he needs to teach me. And let's not settle down and feel like we have life figured out. Now, I don't mean to say that God is going to call you to one thing today, tomorrow it's 180 degrees the opposite direction. God doesn't tend to work that way, although I've had a few cases in my life where there's some pretty drastic changes. And in general, God tends to lead in a, uh, not straight line, but it's kind of in the same direction. But let's be sensitive to God um, continuing to open our eyes. second thing I'd like to call us to is to be willing to be uncomfortable. And you can see this in Bartimaeus and his friend's experience. I don't think their experience was was entirely comfortable. They stepped way out of what was socially acceptable by hollering and hollering and hollering. Um, the multitude was angry with them and tried to quiet them. And I don't know, I doubt Bartimaeus and his friends were really thinking about it, but this was going to really impact their chances of getting coins. They didn't get healed. Um, nobody was appreciating what was going on at all. But being comfortable was not going to get them healed. They knew that their chance was to get Jesus' attention, and if they didn't get his attention, they were not going to get healed. And our lives are pretty comfortable lives compared with much of the world. And I don't mean to minimize the problems that we have. We have challenges and trials and problems and 
deep pains and deep grief. I don't want to minimize that at all. Um, but many of the problems that the majority of the world struggles with are not our problems. Um, we have food and clean water and sanitation and clothing and shelter and steady work and freedom from violence. And those are all things that some people have none of. And probably things that people would give their uh, everything they had to try to obtain some of those things. Um, comfort is often the enemy of growth. And I like to be comfortable. We all like to be comfortable. That's part of our, our nature. Um, but comfort is often the enemy of spiritual growth because we become complacent and we just settle down. And when I talk about being uncomfortable, I'm not calling it to some sort of uh, masochistic something where we just hurt ourselves for the sake of hurting ourselves. But what I'm specifically thinking about is, um, well, let me tell you a story and then, then I'll explain what I'm thinking about. We have a, some books at home about different missionaries and different heroes of Christian faith. One of them is about George Mueller. I could not validate that the story is actually true. So I, I expect it is, but I could not find reference elsewhere. So it's possible this is an author's um, you know, liberty from writing a book. Anyway, the story goes that George Mueller was living in the city of Bristol. He had moved there with, start, with another man and started in his church there. And the church was growing. And, but they were they had received an invitation to go to Baghdad as missionaries. He and some men were heading to the church. And they were very seriously considering moving to Baghdad. And he he went to visit a church member one day, George did. was about two miles away in the poorest section of the town. And on his way, he met this little orphan girl about five years old, and she had her little brother with him with her. She was carrying this little brother, so he was a year or two. And there were orphans there. Their mom had died of cholera because there was a horrible epidemic of cholera. And many, many people had died in Bristol. And then her dad, she said, had gone to the mine and never came back. So maybe he had died as well, or maybe it was a mining accident. And she was begging, and George gave her some money, and then went on his way to, to visit some of this church members. But he started thinking about this and this little girl, and more and more got to him, he finally decided that he didn't need to go to Baghdad. There was a mission right in his own town. And what impresses me about the story is that um, not that George Mueller was uncomfortable in the story, but his interaction with people outside of his normal circle ended up, ended up changing the entire course of his life then because George spent his life then um, building orphanages and caring for orphans, especially in the city of Bristol, although I think he did work in some other cities as well. Um, it's usually more comfortable for us to stay within the group of people that we 
feel comfortable with, the people we know, the people that we're used to interacting with. And my challenge to us is to be willing to be uncomfortable by interacting with people that aren't inside our normal group. Um, Dave Forrest in Guatemala would tell us, if you feel discouraged, you feel down, then what you need to do is go visit your neighbor. And his, his point was, as you get out with other people, you start realizing partly how good things are for you, and you also start realizing how much need is out there, how much other people need, their problems. Your problems are really big when you're by yourself. You start getting out with other people, you start seeing that there's plenty of other problems around you, and your problems maybe aren't nearly as large as you've seen before, you, before you're with them. So it's challenge us to be willing to be uncomfortable, to be willing to be outside of our normal circle, and we'll start to see um, the need that's around us. It'll start to clarify, actually, our spiritual vision. I think, you know, I think initially, as we start to do that, it almost confuses us to begin with, because the things that we thought made sense certainly don't make as much sense in the context of other people's lives. But I think in the long run, it does give us a clearer perspective on, on life and clear spiritual vision. Now, we need God to make sense of the things around us rather than just uh, us trying to puzzle through them. My perspective on life is very, very different than it would have been had I not been in Guatemala for a number of years. And I don't know that I understand life better, but my perspective is very different. Um, some of the rest of you have had experience, Dan and Dan are going to, to this jail ministry. Some of the rest of you have been in jail ministry. I've not had that experience. I was in jail a time or two in Guatemala, um, but I've not had the experience of going there regularly like y'all have. Um, there's many, many different people and areas that we can interact with that can give us a different perspective and help open our eyes spiritually. So what if you call us to not be spiritually complacent um, and, and then to not be, to be willing to be uncomfortable? And the third, I want to call us to pray in faith. That was something these men did. They cried out to Jesus in faith. Um, they were seeking Jesus. They were asking for his help. Crying out for mercy, crying out for their, that their eyes could be opened. And God will answer a cry for spiritual vision. Uh, when we want vision, He desires to, to direct us. That doesn't mean that He answers overnight. Um, sometimes vision takes a while to come. These blind men had to do it, put in some, some effort and be persistent. But we need to pray and cry to God for vision. Um, these men were very specific. And I think sometimes in my prayers, I am too general. I ask God for, you know, dear God, bless so and so. You know, it's a very general prayer. And there's nothing wrong with asking for God's blessing. But I think God also likes some specific prayers. But prayers for specific things. These blind men had a, there was one thing they wanted, and they were very clear with, with Christ about what that, what that was. We need to pray in faith, and faith can be hard to find today. 
seems like reason is often the enemy of faith. I was impressed reading that little book about George Mueller. He always expected God to answer. And I think I struggle to have not the confidence that God will answer, but the confidence that I'm asking the right thing. I don't struggle so much with does God have power to answer my prayers, but I wonder, am I really praying the right thing? You know, is this really what God wants? And, and George Mueller never seemed to have any doubt that what he was praying for was the right thing. We, we need to pray in, in faith. And I don't have a clear answer on how we figure out exactly what God wants us to pray. But we need to pray with faith, expecting God to, to answer us. God desires to give us spiritual vision. And the, the fourth thing that these men did, the weak Louise learned from is they were persistent. They continued crying out over and over again. And life often requires persistence. We know that. I have a little story. This is kind of a double illustration about persistence. Years ago, in some sort of season, um, this was back when Dave, Dave Horst was living there with us. There was a, a big hibiscus hedge planted around our, our property there. And hibiscus grows huge there. And it, it'll get eight, ten feet tall. And so you have to keep cutting it down if you want to maintain it in any sort of uh, order. And Dave was cutting with a machete, chopping this, this head back. But somehow his dog got up behind him, and he swung down and clipped the dog's leg. And it was a sharp machete, and made a pretty good cut in the dog's leg. This dog was bleeding like crazy. And so Dave grabs her and realizes that he'd evidently, he evidently hit an artery. And she's pumping blood, and he can keep pressure on it, and she's fine, she stops bleeding. So our nurse came running over, and she grabs the stuff to try to stitch this dog up. And they're trying and trying and trying to cannot figure out how to stitch this dog up and keep it alive. It's fine as long as you keep pressure on it, but they can't get this thing closed up. Well, so they had to persist. They had to keep working at this. And finally, Dave goes down into this dog's leg and blindly grabs at something, manages to get the artery, and ties the thing off, which doesn't seem like a good solution for the poor dog. But the dog lives. The dog's fine. In fact, when Dave left, the dog was still there. He gave it to the farmer. And, uh, I don't know how much longer she was. She was perfectly fine after that. I don't know where he tied off down his leg, but it's all no problem. Their persistence paid off. Um, persisting in trying to, to heal his dog. Now, the reason this story has a double um, Double illustrates persistence. Alex has been asking me to tell this story for probably five years. And I've never figured out a way to work it into a sermon until now. <clears throat> Life often requires persistence. And each man persisted in crying out to Jesus. Um, when we seek Christ, there are things that get in our way. Sometimes those things are ourselves or our own problems. Sometimes those things are other people, like this multitude. But we need to persist in following God. The Guatemalans, when you'd ask them if they're a Christian, they have a term that they would, they would say, the story of the 
which is a kind of a funny way of describing what they're saying is, I am persevering. They wouldn't say, I'm a Christian or not. They'd say, I'm persevering. They're, they're saying, I'm, I'm continuing to serve God. But it kind of has a nice, nice ring to it, too. It, it gives you the idea that Christian life is an ongoing thing that requires persistence. We need to continue to cry out to God for vision for help. It's not a, not a one-time thing. Life and responsibilities and sin and so many different things fight against spiritual vision. And God wants us to persist in prayer, assured that He wants to lead us. So we talked about humility and a willingness to be uncomfortable, prayer, and then persistence. And then Jesus called these men to Him. We need to go to Jesus. He's the one that can give vision. Um, he wanted them to demonstrate their faith in action. They had to, they had to put some effort into to receiving healing. Not that He wanted work out of them. He wanted to see where their level of faith was. Were they ready, ready to, to demonstrate that faith with action? And I've struggled with this. And I was trying to think, how do we... How do we come to Jesus? What, is, what are practical ways that we go to Jesus? I mean, we can stay, you know, read your Bible, spend time in prayer. Those are important things, but probably many of us are doing that already. What else? He's one of them to demonstrate the faith with action. And he wants us to come to him. What, what can we do to come to Jesus more than what we're already doing? Um, hopefully, we are already spending time in prayer and Bible reading. Um, what can we do more than that to come to Jesus? I don't, I don't know what all the answers are. Maybe it's, maybe it's individual. You know, maybe there's an answer for each of us as individuals different than, than from other individuals. One thing I thought of is that I think we need change. Um, coming to Jesus requires some sort of change on our part. Maybe that is more time with Him. Um, maybe it's removing some distractions from our lives. Uh, maybe it is a specific time of seeking. You know, if there's something that we really need direction for, some specific time with Him is, is really worthwhile. I remember one time many years ago that I felt like I somehow needed to get peace and um, resolution about one area of my life. And finally took a day off from work and went up to the mountains. And I think I ended up running like 12 miles in the mountains just thinking and talking with God. And finally came home feeling peace about it. And then a week later, all of a sudden, the circumstances completely changed in my life. I felt like it was a result of taking that, that time with God. Sometimes what we need is specific time of thinking um, apart from apart from normal, our normal life. So I guess what I, I guess what I want to call us to as we come to Jesus is being willing to make changes that draw us closer to Christ, um, give us more time with Christ, and that, and that demonstrate not only to ourselves but to Him that we are committed to Christ. And then finally, we need to follow Jesus. Jesus will heal. Jesus will give vision. Um, but then we need to follow Him. 
And that's what the blind men did. They did exactly what any person healed by Jesus should have done. They, they followed. They, they studied Jesus. They walked with him. They listened to him. They watched how he interacted with people. And that's what we need to do. See who Jesus is by, by following him. And following Jesus can look pretty illogical. I don't know how many of y'all have listened to other Penny's stories. Uh, he's got some interesting stories. Um, I think about the one especially when he talks about victory through failure, um, which is a time where he felt like he was failing as a missionary. All he was doing was fixing people's jobs. And he had to go to a missionary conference and he had to sit at a conference and tell them that he hadn't done his language studies, he hadn't done any translation, he hadn't done all these things that he was supposed to be doing, he hadn't gotten his reports in. But he, he said he did all those things and he smiled because God had told him that was what he was supposed to do. And they couldn't figure out what to do with him. And, but then there was somebody that had visited his um, mission outfit and said, See all these churches because church is full of people. And it ended up becoming a, um, almost a victory, victory for him through his, through his failure. So following Jesus, and look pretty illogical to people around us. But we need to study Jesus and study what he was like and how he related to people and strive to follow him. And then do what he asked us to do today and then tomorrow do what he asked them. In conclusion, our spiritual vision is quite imperfect. And Christ desires to give us clear spiritual vision. We need humility. We need willingness to be uncomfortable. We need to pray in faith. We need to be persistent to go to Jesus and then to follow Jesus. We went to Harrisonburg a couple weeks ago, and on our way back, we got up on the mountain. It was the foggiest I've ever seen it on top of Aspen, which I've not traveled Aspen, but so many times. But I think I was in deeper fog, denser fog in Guatemala before, but this is the first I've ever seen on Africa. And it got to where I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to tell where my exit was because it was so foggy. And you would follow one fog light at a time to see the next light and the next light and follow that. And then I forgot your exit now. I was partly through it. I was like, is this for sure my exit? I think it is. Finally went off. And then we didn't have fog lights. So then it was following reflector by reflector. And then bit of line by bit of line, and just couldn't see very far. I don't want to give the impression that life is a fog, but God does leave us sort of that way, about a bit at a time, and we need to keep crying out to God like these blind men for improved spiritual vision. That's how it's gone.